Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. You're joining us on this special report on the northeast of England's technology economy. What do you think of when you think of the northeast? Maybe it's the football. Newcastle United, Sunderland, their revival continues. Maybe it's a night out. Good party played. Mint. Fun. Cheap drinks. Certainly is a good place. Uh, the locals are really nice. But what do you think of when you think of the economy of the northeast? Perhaps it's those powerful and distinct images of coal mining and shipbuilding. When I used to be an advisor in 10 Downing Street, my favourite part of the job was getting out of the building and travelling up and down the United Kingdom to find amazing stories of entrepreneurs and business leaders and then briefing the PM on what was changing in our economy. What you might not realise is that there's 27,000 technology jobs in the North East, five major universities, And in a recent recording with Labour MP and Shadow Secretary of State for Business, Johnny Reynolds revealed an astonishing fact. A lot of people don't know that despite the widest of economic position of the North East, it is the only region of England outside the South East that has a net export, Mm. you know, which which is astonishing. And there's a reason why the government has picked Darlington for its new economic campus, as Rishi Sunak mentioned when he appeared on this podcast last year. In terms of what we're doing in the northeast, I announced that we'd set up this campus in Darlington. If we had a campus with a group of people drawn from a different catchment area, they might think about the world differently. It's about spreading opportunity wherever you live in the UK. So today, you're travelling with me to the northeast to meet the people. The thing I've found about the northeast is it's very quietly ambitious. Visit the places. It will be a, a flagship multi-purpose arena. And see the northeast like you've never seen it before. I'm Jimmy McLaughlin, and this is From Coal Mining to Coding, how the North East is building its economy for the 21st century. We left London at 7am and were on the streets of Newcastle recording by 10am. We popped across to the Phil and Lit Society to see where one of the world's first light bulbs was demonstrated and had a wander over to Mosley Street which was the first street in the world to be lit by electricity in 1879, demonstrating that the North East has a long history of innovation. We then jumped on the Metro to head over to Sunderland to meet with David Dunn, the CEO of Sunderland Software City. And tell us about Sunderland Software City. So Sunderland Software City is a not-for-profit. We've been around for 15 years. Our jobs to help grow the tech ecosystem in the Northeast, which ultimately means increase the number of businesses, increase the number of people wanting to work in the industry, and increasing the opportunities for those businesses once they've started up. What's the origin story behind it? Um, it came from the old days of the Regional Development Agency. Mm. Uh, you know, as traditional public spending, there was a market failure. There wasn't enough people wanting to set up tech businesses. So Software City was established. Its purpose was to kind of spread the message that setting up a tech business could be done in the Northeast. Then we put in all the measures to help people do it. And we've been going for 15 years, so we must be doing something right. We've got you know, a company called SaleCycle um, who started in Sunderland, who did that original shopping cart recovery. So the idea of you're on an e-commerce site, you leave it, somebody suddenly then sends you an email saying, you remember what you had in your basket? Yeah. Do you want to buy that? So that was something that came from a Sunderland idea. So what's the Northeast world leading at? Oh, there's a leading question. Um, to be honest, Jimmy, it's not. It's not world leading globally at many things, well, at any things when it comes to technology. But 
that doesn't mean we haven't got brilliant companies who sell globally. It just means we don't have a single cluster that you would class as being globally world-beating. And what is the purpose of Sunderland Software City? We need to make the Northeast a really easy place to come up with an idea for a tech business, start that tech business, raise finance for that tech business, and employ brilliant people in that tech business, to mean that that business does not have to go anywhere else to grow, to scale, to be world-beating. What's the hardest part of that chain at the moment for businesses? I still think in the Northeast, we're slightly behind the curve on aspiration, getting them to realize that they can come from any background, any educational background, any employment background, and find a job that they would enjoy in the tech industry. We'll come back to this point on aspiration a number of times throughout today's episode. Someone who has got themselves perhaps an unexpected technology career in the region was Chantel. And you were saying that your dad passed away when you were quite young. Yeah, so my dad passed away when just after my sixth birthday. So I was raised by a single parent on a council estate. Now, I don't have the statistics to hand, but predominantly it's always, you're never going to get anywhere. I know my mum's had people go, your daughter's never going to amount to anything. So I've been brought up with the statistics against me, told that I'm never going to amount to much. I own my own house. I'm a test manager from my team. Been doing it. You can do it. It doesn't matter where you've came from. If you work hard, you will get to where you want to be. I think I represent the North East by being who I am. Back to David. What's the best thing about growing a business in the North East? Where are its greatest strengths? Um, I could say the very traditional kind of coast, beaches, castles, lovely place to live. But I think it's the fact that there is now that community there. The community you might have only historically seen in some of the in the bigger cities in London. Um, now we've got that here in the northeast. And you've almost been in the tech ecosystem for another 15 years before Sunderland Software City as well. But what have been the changes in that sort of 30-year period? I think one of the key things for me is we've had that cycle of success. So we've had people who've set businesses up, exited from those businesses, and then want to grow and invest in two, three, four, five different businesses. So you're starting to see that kind of mushroom effect grow out. You can't just drag and drop, cut and paste from policy areas elsewhere. So what works in London doesn't necessarily work in Sunderland. What works in Glasgow doesn't necessarily work in Newcastle. Um, That's in part why we set the UK Tech Cluster Group up Mm. to share those ideas. Yeah. And what are the best? You talk about some of those exited entrepreneurs. Give us some examples and case studies and stories. Um, so, I mean, the one that immediately springs to mind in, in the Northeast is a company called The Layton Group, which was set up by three brothers. They've gone on to then run multiple different companies and fund staff to spin companies out. So in that whole portfolio, there must be 10, 11, 12 different companies that have all come from three initial people. James Bunton, who's mm-hmm. now the chief executive of Layton. Now we go to the CEO of Layton Group, James Bunting. Tell us about what you do. Um, So I I guess my day job, I am the CEO of a software development business called Leighton. I've recently become the chair of Dynamo Northeast's advisory board. Mm. Dynamo is a a membership organisation based here in the Northeast, representing the kind of tech sector. Yeah, so Dynamo, I think probably has been going kind of 10 or so years, really recognising that there is 
a good tech economy here in the northeast. I think now we've grown to around kind of 200 members, probably representing more than 10,000 people yeah. um, working in the kind of the tech sector in the northeast. Uh, and really, what we're trying to do is to help you know, bring that that sector together, help empower that sector, and help create the the best tech economy that we can for the region. I'd recently started coaching my. Uh, my six-year-old's uh, football team and realised that I was giving back in an area that perhaps I wasn't that qualified to do. Um, so giving back in the in the tech sector where I've spent my entire career seemed like a better fit. And so what was your startup before that then? It, it was a company called Communicator Corp. Um, I appreciate when I tell this story kind of 20 years after we started, it doesn't sound hugely exciting, but um, 20 years ago, email marketing was actually quite a, a challenge for organisations yeah. to, to do. Um, they didn't necessarily have the technology. You needed to have a lot of manpower to, to do it. Um, what we set about doing was creating a software as a service platform to enable marketeers to create those email campaigns themselves, automate the kind of the touch points so that emails were going out automatically. And I think we grew that to be, if not the largest, certainly one of the largest independent email service providers in Europe. So you're doing that just at the turn of the millennium then? Yeah. I mean, that was quite sort of, I think I was just about getting my first email account there, right? Like, you know, that was pretty sort of at the forefront. At the, of it. At the time, we were competing with things like kind of fax and, and, and direct mail. So, yeah, I know you probably don't even know what a fax is, <laughs> yeah. but that's the that's what we were up against. What are the names of some of the businesses that we should watch out for? There's a, a business across the water in Gateshead um, called Recite Me. There's a, a really strong software development business. Let's go to the next stage of our journey in Gateshead. It's just a half hour walk over the River Tyne to Proto. Proto is the first digital production facility of its kind in Europe. It is an amazing purpose-built space where we were able to look at some of the futuristic technology. If you want to see me playing the role of a mechanic in virtual reality, then you should head over to our YouTube channel. But first, let's check in with Ross Linnett, the CEO of Recite Me. And what does Recite Me do? So basically, we if you go to a website and you're dyslexic or visually impaired, there's a chances are the website's not built for you. Mm. It's built for people who can read well and people who can see it well. And we allow the website themselves to change how it functions to help people with dyslexia and visual impairments. And the, the classic one is like the website will speak to you or it'll change the background colors or do magnification. And how do you make it more accessible? What are the fundamental mistakes that companies are making? The fundamental mistake is a one-size-fits-all, which is what websites are. So you go to a website, it's normally black text with a white background. Mm -hmm. But people on a neurodivergent scale, so you go from dyslexia, you can go into dyspraxia and autism. They It would work much better if it's customized for them. But that, it's, it's personal. So you will actually have, even though you're not dyslexic, you will have a color combination that's right for you. Yeah. Well, I am actually dyslexic. So oh, yeah. Sure. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, Interesting. Do you know the theory on partly why colour works? No. So every person that reads, you, you, your, your lens can't stay the same all the time. Otherwise, it will get broken. So in a microsecond, your eye looks away from what you're reading. It refocuses on something else and then it focuses back just so it's, it's like exercising. When you find a colour combination that's right for you, it doesn't strain the eye, so the looking away and refocusing at this millisecond that you don't even recognise doesn't happen as much. Yeah. How have you found funding and raising money? In the Northeast in particular, or just 
in general? Well, I suppose, a- yeah, in the Northeast and in, you know, an accessibility industry, yeah, it's not necessarily, you know, East London fintech. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, a strange, there's a strange dichotomy when you're doing something that is good and will affect change, almost like patting you on the head, well done, Ross, you know, and we're like, no, right? Yeah, we're doing this and we want to change this and we don't want people to have the same experience that I've went through being dyslexic and not realizing. However, do you realize this is 25% of the world's population that isn't being catered for? This is a massive market. So we found raising money way easier than I think the average person would because of the difference engine. How have you found more broadly growing a company from the Northeast? It's it's actually a fantastic environment to raise money and grow a company. And we've just done a 4.2 million pound investment from British Growth Fund, which is the biggest private equity fund in the UK. I dislike correcting guests, but technically they actually go by BGF. Their original name was the Business Growth Fund. I know this because we've got Andy Gregory, the CEO, appearing on the show in the next couple of weeks. And they're head of the North. So he's a, he's a big fish in it, Barry Jackson, fantastic guy. And he said he, he was surprised at how good the Northeast was and how much was going on up here. Talk to us more about your family then. So which mining town did you grow up in? Stanley, the centre of the universe, as I still call it. And were your... Um, were your uh, was your dad a miner then? Uh, me, me, me dad wasn't, but the grandparents were. So yeah. everybody in you above me dad's generation worked in the mines, basically, yeah. And what did your parents do? My father was a like a joiner, carpenter. Yeah. My mother worked part-time in a supermarket. So, But it was funny times because there wasn't a lot of work around up here because the industry got killed. And I'm not going into the politics of that, but then that has not gone effects in other industries. So even if you had somebody who was a joiner, the work was probably, you know, like 50, 60% of the time there. I mean, when I was really young, like five-year-old, the unemployment in Stanley was about 60%. So it was, it was, it was quite crazy times when you look back, but I feel really privileged because it still has a community. And what's your plan for the business? How big can it go? Total addressable market is absolutely huge because every website needs to be accessible. I mean, you know yourself from a dyslexic point of view, but from a business point of view, you know, the displaced spending in the UK is 16 billion. So 83% of people who go to a website that is not right for them with regards to accessibility will go to another website. I want to prove that you can build a company that's worth hundreds of millions, potentially a billion, that can do good for society, instigate change and prove that you can do it in an area like Gator in the northeast this really struck me as a defining moment of the series the passion the ambition the fact there's really exciting things happening up here the hottest topics like ai data and language are a rapidly emerging market up here let's meet peter dakin of word nerds where did the name word nerds come from yeah, so my partner in linguistic crime is a, is a guy called Steve. He's a preposterously tall linguist, which makes him the most exciting person in any room. Um, and when I met him, he was a freelance linguist. That's a real job. 
Uh, and uh, yeah, he basically had on his email signatures, uh, Steve Erdl, Word Nerd. And when we got together to create Word Nerds, we went through the, the book of all of the names. It is literally the hardest thing in starting a new business to come up with a good name. And we had a big list of things and none of them were as good as his email signature. Um, and what does Word Nerds do? So we are a customer feedback uh, analysis platform. So basically, large organizations like Marks and Spencers generate 6 million customer contacts a year. Sometimes that's through uh, call centers. Sometimes it's on web chat, it's surveys, it's reviews online. There's all kind of customer touch points. Let's take an example like that. Retailer comes to you and says we have all these uh, touch points. So are you basically almost putting it into a single place and then analyzing the well, tens, hundreds of thousands of, of words. Exactly that. Because in any organization, different parts of the organization own different things. So numbers are quite uh, easy to understand. Whereas words are quite weird. Humans are pretty mad at the best of times. We've got all kinds of wonderful regional variations in how we speak up here. We've got a whole different vernacular <laughs> yeah. than our, our, our southern brethren. How many years have you been going for? So we've been going five years now. Yeah. Uh, we basically, I was merrily running a digital agency in the northeast and we went to a, a challenge day that nissan ran that was put on by an organization called sunland software city nissan's challenge was that if you uh, if you buy a new car from them and it breaks down and you know by the time the the dealer gets the car solves the problem returns it to you and then reports it in the qa database at the factory in sunderland that process takes two weeks when you produce a car every 29 seconds that's seventeen thousand cars that might have the same problem yeah. with a warranty claim and they were saying well if you've just done, bought a car and it's got a problem and you've got a twitter account you're probably going to slag us off on twitter yeah so our first job was trying to find people complaining about nissan's on uh twitter which is harder than it sounds a because they're a pretty good car company. It's not that much of it. And yeah. It's a bit of a kind of needle in a haystack thing. But B, all of their brands are things like a leaf or a note or words in common parlance. So if you try and do a search on Twitter for a leaf in August, like good luck with that. Yeah. Um, and we were an agency at the time and I'd met Steve, this linguist in a pub. And I think our pitch to Nissan was, you asked us to look at your data. We didn't. Uh, you asked us to look at the software. We haven't got any, but we've got this half-assed idea about how you can use really, really new AI and really, really old corpus linguistics to to solve the problem. And fools that they are, they gave us some money. So what led you to starting the digital agency? Uh, so originally I thought I was going to be a football writer. I sort of played five-a-side with the same group of lads since I was yay big and all my family and stuff was up here. I, I love it up here and started to to write for football magazines at a time when we had magazines. Um, and over a period of three or four years, uh, firstly, I had a lot of fun sort of going up and down the country watching Sunderland play football, chasing girls and watching bands, which everybody should do in their early 20s. But then also we started to see uh, magazine sales declining as football fans became early adopters of this thing called the Internet. Mm. Um, and I remember buying a book called Learn HTML in a Weekend, put together a really rubbish website. And within a couple of weeks, we had 60, 70, 80,000 visits to this website. So what was the name of the football It's called The Blizzard. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that, that's that's how was that? That was great. I didn't I mean, that. So, uh, a mate of mine at school, uh, so a guy called Jonathan Wilson, who writes for the Guardian, and yeah. he literally wrote the the book on football tactics called Inverting the Pyramid. He's like, I've got stories about a Chilean fullback who played a season and a half with a wooden leg, but I've got nowhere to put it, and so we literally in the pub 
came up with this idea of doing a longer form football magazine where football writers could write about anything they wanted without any kind of editorial push. And we started that and we did it on a kind of pay what you want basis. And yeah. found it's still going. It's a brilliant publication, well worth a well worth a read. And I just want to touch a bit more on football, because obviously we you were part of the Football Supporters Federation for twenty years. But why why is it so passionate up here? Why is it different? Uh why is it so passionate up here? Oh, so there's different answers to this. Mm. But I think when I so my relationship with football stemmed from growing up in the sort of early 1980s where the northeast was a difficult place the um you know the whole economic uh landscape was changing the whole reliance on heavy industry coal shipbuilding all that kind of thing that was all being dismantled we hadn't yet built the kind of service economy that Thatcher was pushing us down the the road of uh, so there was a lot of unemployment. It was very difficult. Men at that time were quite buttoned up. They were quite emotionless. It wasn't the same kind of sort of psychological environment that it is now. And I remember my uncle Alan took me to the match. I was interested in football. He took me to the first game. And it was the first time I saw adults, adult men, shout and scream and show emotion and in some cases cry. And I remember, I remember being struck by just the kind of the emotion of it and and at a, at a time when it was difficult and we didn't have a lot to shout about the passion for sport is a running theme throughout the northeast you may or may not be aware of esports but it's the competitive playing of video games and you might think of teenagers in their bedroom but there's some serious money not just in terms of the playing prizes but also the investment into the sector as a whole i caught up with aaron rook from British Esports. So tell me about the campus and what's being built here. So the uh, the campus, the National Esports Performance Campus is uh, one of its kind in, in the UK. Um, it's, it's basically been created to nurture and um, promote and educate the next level of esports talent. And that's all gonna be here in Sunderland. And how, and how big? So esports is absolutely ginormous in the uk alone there's you know there's over um 45 million people play video games but in esports it's it's not just the people playing the games it's the it's the business side of things it's event management it's it's coding it's you know it's performance as well so sports science comes into it that perception that it's just someone sat in a dark room playing games and that's it and there's no interaction it, it actually couldn't be further from the truth Talk to us about how big the kind of industry is. So the industry is, well, it's still very much in its infancy, really. Um, but the video game industry itself is, is larger in the UK than film, TV put together. As an entertainment industry, it is just, it far surpasses anything else. And esports obviously comes into that as well, because most of the titles that you, you, know, you hear about, your FIFAs, Rocket League's League of Legends, these these events when they play in the finals for you know vast sums of money, yeah. and this is all your site here as well, right? So you're trying to make the St George's Park for esports, right? Yeah, essentially, um, that's that's the grandiose idea, I think. Yeah, it's so this this right here is this is what we we're going to call the place, yep. part of the National Esports Performance Campus, right next door to it. 
uh, are our gaming houses. What is a gaming house going to... What's it going to look like? So a gaming house is essentially... Um, it's called it's called many different things a gaming house. People call it a boot camp space. Again, the difference between you know a traditional sport and esports is, you know, I could be playing with with someone who's from Germany, right? Yeah. It's not the same as you know we don't have to necessarily be on the same pitch. But what the gaming houses do and the game house concept does, it brings people together, and you you'll stay with your team for weeks or months at a time. There's always like a training camp. It's a training camp. So give us an idea of the other jobs that would be in this kind of gaming house, right? Yeah. So, I mean, for example, we have a guy who works with us called AJ, uh, and he is a performance coach. So what he does is he works on uh, not just the nutritional side, he also works on the mental well-being and the coaching. So, you know, physically, mentally, and nutritionally, he will work with the players to make sure they've got the correct diet, the correct amount of sleep, and he'll also work on things like um, the mental side of things in terms of how different it is playing in a gaming house to on stage because yeah. it's a very different atmosphere um, and how they, can, how they can cope with those and the worries that they have from that. We then went on a walking tour through Sunderland where we arrived next to the Stadium of Light. So we're here at the Stadium of Light, yeah. which hosts Sunderland Football Club. About yeah. 45,000 people come here each yeah. weekend to watch Sunderland. Here you're also going to be building an eSports stadia into that, which is going to be multi-functional. Just give us an idea of the amount of numbers that are going and watching eSports online. When we're talking about eSports, one of the highest attended live events in eSports, you're looking at 173,000 people, so that's you know, a packed yeah, out yeah, Stadium yeah. of Light three times over. and when you factor online into that as well, I think the highest uh, ever viewed and attended event was 60 million people. Yeah, which so is just extraordinary just numbers. Absolutely right? astronomical, yeah, absolutely. North East is obviously known for its passion in football particularly, but also there is quite a big video games hub up here as well, right? We've already heard of the likes of Double Eleven and Tom Bowler as well. What is it about the North East which makes it such a kind of video game and sports region? It is just, we just breed creativity here. What will this stadia do for esports in Britain? It will be a, a flagship multi-purpose arena, this. Um, like you said, you, you mentioned before, 45,000 people are going to be walking past here. We're going to have a huge digital space on the side of, of this building, which is going to sort of showcase esports to the, the, the thousands of people who come here every single week. It's going to be absolutely massive. It's going to be a really, really cool venue for people to make the pilgrimage up to Sunderland. This will be a reason for people to come up here to experience eSports. What do you say to the parents of kids of that age that didn't really play video games, etc., and see you know, the amount that people are playing in it? What are the safeguards and things that are in around it like that? Because there'll be a lot of people who get quite worried about this. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we see that a lot. A lot of parents are you know, worried about what their kids are doing online, what they're doing in video games and stuff. Um, we, we try and sort of counteract that with a lot of learning. We, we try and teach a lot of not just students, but parents as well, about, about the benefits of esports. Um, in particular, we run something called the Student Championships, which we have over 190 schools and colleges across the UK who take part every single year. And we have a, a live national final um, down in Nottingham um, and that is fantastic some of the stories that we've had 
from that. Um, I mean, I don't want to get too emotional about it, but you know, parents who have never seen their their children either interact with other people or have hobbies outside of school or you know or compete in a traditional sports their their kids have have taken to esports so well and they've made lifelong friends and 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 sort of bonds with those people um and they've also been they've competed on a national stage in front of their parents where their brothers and sisters they play in football or what or whatever it may be uh and esports is just it has offered these kids that ability to be themselves and to be celebrated by their parents and, and, and learn these things. And that's something that should be celebrated by parents. I was pretty bowled over by some of the statistics around esports. It will be fascinating to see how big the esports industry can get and how it can professionalise and scale itself and see if the northeast of England truly can become the home of it. Let's head back to Gateshead, joining Billy from XR Therapeutics in their state of the art facility. And what does XR Therapeutics do? So what we do is we combine cognitive behavioural therapy alongside virtual reality to really speed up mental health treatment. So an example could be that somebody has um, anxiety around being in a social situation. So what we do is we have a bank of scenes of various social situations like being at a theatre, being in a cafe, being at a shopping centre, being in an office. Um, a therapist would take them through those scenarios um, at their pace, but using cognitive behavioral therapy techniques at the same time. Yeah. Um, and what, how it's more effective and efficient is we do that in one week in two sessions, as opposed to traditional methods, which is 10 sessions at least over a period of three months. And you're using virtual reality? Yeah. So where does the XR come from rather than VR? Because we've got a mix of um, technologies that we're producing behind the scenes. So we've stuck with XR because we've got lots of different things coming in the future, different types of headsets, remote delivery, um, metaverse delivery, lots of different ones. So the reason we went with XR was because we're not just going to be stuck with what we're doing at the moment. Yeah, very Elon Musk. (laughs) What? um, Give us an example of how it could work. Yeah, so... so the other big thing of what we do that's really important is that we tailor it for individuals. So in the first instance, um, a trained therapist will meet with a patient, find out what their issues are, what the triggers are. They'll not be at an airport or an aeroplane. They could be on a beach. They could be in front of a roaring fire. They could be in the countryside. And in the, those early stages, the therapist is taking them through different relaxation techniques before they're then exposing them to their fear. Once we get into that scene, it's a step-by-step process. So you would never take them into the scene and then be on the aeroplane and there'd be turbulence. You'd be at the airport and you're taking them through step-by-step but keep checking in with the patient all the time. We've got a scale. So six is, I'm really scared and I don't want to be here. One is, I'm not scared at all. So the therapist is constantly checking in where they are on that scale and using CBT techniques to reduce that anxiety before moving on to the next bit. And you're, it's those triggers that you can also help with earlier on, right? So what other things have you worked on? Yeah, so we've done all kinds. So we, you know, we, we get commonality of things coming forward, like issues with dogs, vomiting, um, OCD yeah. um, quite a lot. Um, a lot of social anxiety about, you know, around being around other people. And I think a lot of that is post-COVID. Yeah. You know, returning 
um, being around large crowds, um, the noise and impact of that compared to what we've been through through the last two years. Um, yeah, honestly, the, the depth and breadth of the things that we get, um, open spaces, enclosed spaces, um, wasps, heights, yeah, um, the wind, um, public transport is a big thing. So being on the bus, being on a train, um, these are all things that I've that we've treated in the last couple of months. And how did you come up with the idea? So I didn't. I'd love to say I did. <laughs> so what happened was um, Newcastle University and local NHS Trust started working together about. Must be 12 years ago now. So Jeremy Parr, clinical academic, specialising in working with autistic patients, was getting frustrated because what was being offered to them to support them with anxiety wasn't working, so therefore wasn't being offered. So it was being like less than 3 4% effective. Yeah. So how can we support autistic children and adults with overcoming anxiety? Why don't we combine something visual? We'll still use cognitive behavioural therapy, but we'll change that slightly and we'll add the visual element. So 10 years worth of research, patient trials, huge success. Give us an idea of the size and scale of the company. Have you raised money? How many people do you employ? Yeah, so our first raise, we raised like 350k when yeah. we first started. So that was April 2021. At the time, there was two of us. So yeah. there's seven of us now, and we're doing another raise at the moment, okay. which will be around the one and a half to two million mark. What's the sort of business model? Presumably, it's mainly through the NHS. Well, we are working with two NHS trusts at the moment yeah. um, in talks with several others, and we obviously want to push it out far and wide across the UK. But we also want to work in the private industry, and we want to push into the US as well. So the business model is we work with a company on the first basis to pay to you know, work with a certain number of patients, and then they sign up to a licensing agreement yeah. where they get more access Cost per patient comes right down, um, and they get huge efficiency. We've done some health economics with the NHS where a therapist who um, would normally see patients within CBT would see, on average, 82 a year. So that's 12 sessions all the way through. Do it our way, it's more like 470. We went on to chat to Ashmita, the head of innovation at Sunderland Software City, who had a bit of a different background to what you might expect. So what's the what's the role of Head of Innovation? What are you trying to achieve? Part of our role here is is to be technical matchmaker sometimes, you know, yep. because you've got those big challenges that that, that companies may have that the tech um, ecosystem and the companies can help solve and bring in, a, you know, sort of solutions to the table that, that large companies A, may not have the time or the, or, mm-hmm. or, the, or the expertise to solve. Part of it is fostering sort of seeds of what's coming next. So it's it's scanning the academic landscape to to see what are the new interventions or inventions that are be thought about that we need to start bringing to industry to say, have you thought about that? You know, have you thought about quantum technology? Mm-hmm. So it's 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 bringing those various people together in a meaningful way to ensure that you can create change that that works for the majority of people or as many people as possible because not every technological adoption is going to work uh, for every every part of, of of an organization. But what's what's really important is that we ensure that if there's national initiatives that we're bringing to the region, it makes sense for the needs of the companies in the region. 
What's the biggest misconception that the rest of the UK holds about the Northeast, do you think? I think the thing I've found about the Northeast is it's very quietly ambitious. Mm. And and I think because we don't necessarily shout about the things that, that are going on here, people may not have an appreciation for what's going on here or yeah. that, you know, that, that, that level of ambition may not be the same as might be perceived in other parts of the country. Um, and, and so I think that, to me, that I think that may be one of the one of the things that's a differentiation. And talk to us about the universities because there are a lot here. It's very Fancy. dense because often universities, academia, can be siloed even within their own mm-hmm. spheres, but also particularly siloed uh, from businesses. So mm-hmm. how do you do that? We've partnered with the National Innovation Centre for Data, that's based at Newcastle University, um, to d- to launch um, a hub in the northeast called uh, the Hartree Northeast Hub, mm. which the Hartree National Centre for Digital Innovation is based in Daresbury, and this is about basically getting cu- uh, small and medium-sized companies to adopt um, data, data science techniques, think about AI and machine learning and how that's relevant to, to business outputs. So, you know, the collaboration between... Uh, the National Innovation Center for Data and us is a representation of academics, you know, who are wanting to work with industry. As a woman of color in tech, what have your reflections been on that journey? It's been a fascinating one, that's mm. for sure. I mean, I've always been a woman of color in a STEM field, right? Uh, and and that's something that makes you very aware of the various parts that that you have to navigate. I think the one thing I've become increasingly passionate about. And part of it might be I'm a mother. I want to make sure my daughter sees representation mm. on stages where there may not be representation. I've become very passionate about amplifying voices that may not always have a home. There's some fantastic examples of companies, and I think you'll be you'll be talking to a few today, of, of people who've come from different backgrounds, mm. people who um, have emigrated to this country and are wanting to create change and add value. So almost past the mic then, like in terms of what other interesting companies and leaders out there should we be talking to? Uh, so Polybox Solutions is, is one of them in the Northeast. I, I, think they're, I think they're brilliant. So now we are going to go to a story about an Iranian founder who met her Greek co-founder while studying at Newcastle University, all because her dad told her the only place she could study was Newcastle. I'm now joined by Regine of Polybox Solutions. Where does the name Polybox Solutions come from? So my co-founder Nick is Greek and poly means many. And we were thinking about expenses, receipts, invoices, everything you have to deal with for your budget and expenses in one box. So Polybox Solutions means so many things in one box and we are making it fixed. We are fixing it for you. And where did the idea come from? So that goes back from the time that I was studying my master's at Newcastle University. I picked up a part-time job in one of the local shops in Newcastle City Centre. And I realized this expense bit and receipt bit is a huge problem for the manager and for the customers that are coming there. So my master's was e-business. And what drew you to Newcastle? (laughs) That's a very weird story. So my aunt lives here. And my dad says, if you're going to go study abroad, it's either Newcastle or nowhere else. So I just applied for Newcastle University, if I'm being honest. So that, I was lucky that I got in, but yeah. that was the only choice I had. So, But I liked it, so I stayed. It's been a little bit challenging, but people are very nice in the Northeast. That's one of the reasons that we really stayed, if I'm being honest. So people are trying to help us as much as we can. How have you found it as uh, an Iranian woman 
running a startup in Newcastle? Uh, so one thing that I really like a about... A fintech startup as well. Yeah. Right? <laughs> one thing that I really like about Northeast is that people are really nice and generally want to help. So I've never felt like I'm an outsider. But one thing that bothered me a lot was the fact that I didn't know much. So at the beginning, we were very lost. So we both come from other countries. Nick is from Greece, as I said. So we both were very, very lost. We started from university, but the problem that we had at that time was that university hadn't dealt with like um, tech businesses that yeah. much. So they didn't have the connections that we needed. But one thing that really helped us was connecting to Ignite Peri Accelerator. So when we got to that, it really changed the way that we were working and we got connected to a community that they were founders, female founders, internationals, mm -hmm. and we learned a lot through that. So I I can say I've I was lucky a little bit that I got connected to nice people. How helpful have Sunderland Software City been on the journey? So they were very nice. They were there from the beginning, if I'm being honest, and then they were changing in different bits. For example, we worked with one of the companies that works, I think is part of the Sunderland Software City that was Digital Pathfinders, that we uh, made a prototype with no code with them from the beginning that we started to testing our MVP, that they helped a lot. And I mean, everybody in Sunderland Software City are extremely nice. And we've worked here and there with them. They had interesting uh, networking sessions that we saw, we met so many nice people there. So generally speaking, I think they were at the base of connections and finding new people and finding key people in the Northeast. What's the biggest misconception that the rest of the UK and probably even wider afield hold about the Northeast? They think nothing is going on here. They yeah. think it's very quiet here. I remember I have a friend that she lives in Manchester. They have a startup as well. And they were telling us why you're in Newcastle. Just come to Manchester, there are way more opportunities. And I told her, like, not only there's a lot going on here, but people are nice and you know everybody. It's a small community and very kind community. But once I brought her here and she was like, yeah, this is in another level. If you could go back and tell yourself one thing when you were starting out on this journey, what would it be? I would do it 100% again. But I would say don't get caught up in small things. So don't get caught up in details and just go with it. And then network as much as you can, because I hate networking, but that bit was a hard bit for us. But I think if I go back, I'm just like, go to every single networking event that is out there and talk with people. I wasn't planning on including this in the documentary, but Jamie, the head of comms at Sunderland Software City, gave me a tour of their offices and told us about a life-changing event. Jane, thanks very much for showing me around Sunderland Software City. I can't help but notice you walk with a with a stick. What's the story there? Yes, I broke my back in three places uh, last year Ooh. in a near fatal hiking accident, um, which of course wasn't good. So yes, last year was three different hospitals, and then um, I'm currently on month sixteen of of the rehab. I've had a lot of oh, a hell of a lot of support from the from the team here, the leadership how, team here at Software how, City. How did it happen? Um, I've been hiking all of my life. Uh, proposed to my wife at the top of Kilimanjaro. So you know, we you know we, yeah. we're experienced hikers. And I was doing a descent in in tricky conditions, and basically um, a bit of a terrain slip, and the path stopped. So I, I was literally trapped on a ledge and had to uh, make an executive decision on trying to to get down. So you know, not a lot of people around, no signal on the phone. Um, the plan was to drop down to another ledge below me. But basically, when I landed on it, momentum took me and I ended up falling about 
30 feet, so back break, chest break, 90% of the rib cage. Um, a week later in, in hospital had lost all uh, sensation and mobility below the hips. Uh, so much so that the, the initial diagnosis was um, walking again would be highly unlikely. Um, and then about seven to eight weeks later, one morning in hospital, my big toe flickered. I mean, do you remember much of it happening? I can't remember the actual fall itself, but I can remember the aftermath and waking up with a lot of blood and looking at my legs. I've never broken a bone before, so I assumed it was my legs that yeah. were broken when I couldn't get up. One of the first responders said, it's, I think it's a broken back. So we had to wait for two and a half hours, two hours, 45 for a helicopter. Yeah. Um, so yes, very, very, very lucky to still be here and still be doing what I love. So yeah. yeah and indeed. you were supported by, you were saying, the Sunderland Software City guys. Yeah, so the, the guys here have been unbelievable. So, you know, whether that's our core leadership team who were all were very close, the wider ecosystem as well, you know, founders, um, technologists, coders, developers, people that I would go to the pub with on a Thursday yeah. evening. They've, um, yeah, they've, they've had my back. <laughs> I'm glad I, can, I can make a joke about it. You can now. make a joke about it. Now that I'm back on two feet, Jimmy, I can have a, have a slight laugh about it. Right? Exactly, I'm walking around. No, it's great to see. Well, thanks for sharing that. It's, uh, no problems. Yeah. When people talk about the people of the Northeast, that uh, that does say a lot. Jamie didn't mention that literally thousands of pounds were raised in a matter of days to help with his recovery. Jamie's story sums up my time in the Northeast: the tenacity, the understatement, and the quiet ambition. When we are making a documentary like this, there's a list of questions that you want to ask everyone to see if you can spot any patterns. And well, there was one theme that reoccurred time and time again. What's the best thing about the northeast? This place is very cold, I don't know if you've noticed, but the people are very warm. I think the people, and everyone's so welcoming. You can go out and it doesn't matter if you know the person, they'll say hello. And it's just a really sort of friendly place to be. You can just be who you are. And like, I'm massively biased, but we're really friendly. You know, just, if you go into a pub in the northeast and you're on your own, Somebody's going to talk to you at some point, and I don't think that's replicated everywhere. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Best people in the world. And well, here's the thing. What makes up a local economy? Because of its geography and natural resources, Newcastle was originally a military fortress location. The clue is in the name. But what makes up a modern economy is knowledge, and it's local people that make up that knowledge. When we first started putting together this piece, I started asking people in my network, what did they think of when they thought of the modern day Northeast economy? One of the memorable answers I received was, isn't it just national parks and call centers because people trust the Geordie accent? Well, judging by the cutting room floor of our podcast studio, they could not be more wrong. There is so much we haven't included. With a modern day economy, it is inevitably a little less visual. That's what we're trying to do here at Jimmy's Jobs, is bring the future of our economy to life. That's always been the aim of this podcast. Feels slightly surreal to have started on a £40 Amazon mic to now taking up a whole team to showcase the power of the Northeast economy. There's thousands of untold business stories across the whole of the UK, which from my experience, government don't know about. And it's time for that to change. Our economy has changed a dramatic amount over the last half century. Like many of the guests in this episode, I come from a coal mining family 
and have seen social mobility in action. But it's been a real challenge for places to shift. Because as David Dunn said, every area is different with its own culture and identities. Just because something works in Silicon Valley doesn't mean you can just cookie cutter the model for everywhere else. What I did come away thinking though, was that the Northeast does find itself in a strong position of being a Goldilocks style economy, not too small and not too big. Through the likes of Sunderland Software City, you can reach anyone that you need to in the area. But there's so much going on in the Northeast, whether it's companies like Double Eleven employing 300 people in Middlesbrough, working on huge titles such as Red Dead Redemption. We didn't even get a chance to speak to them on this trip. You have been listening to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, and that was from coal mining to coding, how the Northeast is building a 21st century economy. If you want extra content, we have uploaded a mini documentary to YouTube. We have said that if that gets 20,000 watches, we'll look to come back and do a second episode about the economy of the Northeast.